Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's Wednesday morning. And I was uh, chatting with uh, Lindsay yesterday how every morning it's like a pajama party. That's heartstrong. We wake up, we're all in our pajamas. So it's just good to be with you today. Um, would there be someone, I know it's still very, very early. Um, I love when people though open up in prayer. So would there be someone who would uh, open us up in prayer today? I can do that, Pastor Terry, if you wish. Uh, sounds great. Thank you, Carol. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, as always, we thank you for the air in our lungs so we can uh, praise and worship you this morning. Lord, we thank you for this glorious day this morning. The sun is just coming up, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, this morning that we could gather as a heartstrong family, Lord, to come and listen to what you have to say through Pastor Terry this morning. So this morning, we ask you to uh, just help us open up our spiritual ears, open up our hearts, soften them up, Heavenly Fathers, so we mm -hmm. hear exactly what it is, Lord, that you have for us today. So we ask you to be with Pastor Terry this morning, everyone that is on this call and all those that will be listening later this evening and listening to the recording. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, let's just remember our verse for the month, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so here we are. It's Wednesday. Uh, yesterday, we continued looking at the different sorts of offerings in the first several chapters of Leviticus. If you remember, there are uh, five offerings we're looking at. The first three are voluntary offerings. The last two, which we will cover today and tomorrow, uh, were mandatory offerings. And uh, yesterday we looked at the the peace offering and the fellowship, uh, the the fellowship and the grain offering. The grain offering was an offering that represent Thanksgiving. Um, you know, we continue to celebrate while we don't offer grain in the altar, we do take part in the Lord's Supper, which is, uh, you know, we get, that's how we give thanks to the Lord. One of the ways we give thanks to the Lord is by breaking bread uh, and drinking the cup together as, um, as you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then as well, we looked at the fellowship offering, which is a, was a very beautiful um, offering because it signified how we have fellowship with God or, or the Israelites had fellowship with God, but not just with God, but with one another, for they were a covenantal community. And to be brought into a, co a covenant with God, it was not an individual covenant. It was a communal covenant. So they were, they were, they were in it thick or thin. And, uh, you know, it's important to note that the, the offering made for atonement for sin is, was offered before the fellowship offering was made. We remember that all of us, the reason why we have fellowship 
with God and with one another is because Christ was the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. So we just give thanks to the Lord and we just want to say thank you, Lord, that we can see you in every single chapter so far throughout Leviticus. Uh, the Lord is good, and I pray that your love for the Lord is just growing stronger and stronger by reading these, uh, the, these chapters in the book of Leviticus. But that brings us, so today you, you've read uh, chapter 5 and 6, so we are still playing a little bit of catch-up, and we're going to be reading, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Leviticus 4 all the way to the first section of Leviticus 6. So we'll pick up maybe the first, I think it's first seven or eight verses in, in Leviticus chapter 6. And then by tomorrow, uh, we will come all the way to the end of Leviticus 7, which features all five of the offerings. But I want to begin today by just reading 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. And it says this, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And part of the gospel is recognizing and acknowledging that we are all sinners, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes to great length to tell us how, apart from God, we don't stand a chance in overcoming our sin. And so in Leviticus chapter 4, we're introduced to the sin offering which was God's gracious provision for the guilty person by which a person's sin was purged and they received divine forgiveness. You know, this offering should be thought of as an offering of purification. Yet, the sacrifice of animals were only able to purify the outer corruption of a person. Uh, what they could not do, what, it, what a sacrifice could not do was purify the inward part of a person. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 to 14 reads, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so as we look at this fourth offering today in the book of Leviticus, let's also remember that the Lord has made a sure and eternal means of purifying and forgiving our sins through the death of Jesus Christ. So would someone uh, be willing to read for us Leviticus chapter 4, uh, the first 12 verses? Uh, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be reading in Leviticus, so it's going to be a little bit strange at times, but I think it's a good exercise for us to sort of get rooted in the um, in the chapter we're looking at. So would someone read the first 12 verses of Leviticus? I can do it. Oh, Leviticus chapter 4. Thanks, Dan. And the Lord spoke to Moses, uh, saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any of one of them, it is the anointed priest who sins thus, bringing guilt on the people. Then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed, a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting 
before the Lord and laid his hand on the head of the bull and killed the bull before the Lord. And the, and the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all of the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it. The fat that covers the entrails entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its uh, dung, all of the rust of the bowl he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burnt up. All right, thanks. And as you can see, you know, a lot there. <laughs> so let's try to unpack it just a little bit. All right, so, so the sin offering was given to remedy the sins that were committed unintentionally. So that's the key word. And if you read, you know, further down in Leviticus 4, you see when a, you know, the community sins unintentionally, uh, when a leader sins unintentionally. So this sin that a person committed was by mistake or by error. It was a misstep. But whether or not a person broke the covenant law by mistake or on purpose, he was still guilty of transgression. And as long as a man transgressed God's law or man or woman transgressed God's law, there would be a great divide between the two. And it is just impossible for God to, to deny his inherent holiness as it is for a human being to escape his inherent sinfulness. You know, let me say that again. It's impossible for God to deny his inherent holiness as it is for a human being to escape his inherent sinfulness. And the sin offering made it possible for God to remain among his people because there was a gift that could reconcile the offender to God. And in chapter five, so if you got your Bibles open, you know, if you turn to chapter five, you know, it will outline in chapter five, some of the ways how a person could sin by accident. And there's a few examples that are given. Uh, some of those examples are that they failed to appear in court as a witness. Um, maybe a person touched a dead animal. Uh, a person touched human, a human unclean, uncleanliness or something unclean about a human. Or a person spoke maybe a rash oath. Those are the examples given in chapter five. But as you can tell, it would be pretty much impossible in ancient Israel to not commit one of these sins. But nevertheless, the offender was still guilty by the standard of God's holiness. And so this really speaks to our human condition as well, because, you know, regardless of what we've done or not done, and no matter how hard we've strived for righteousness, 
every one of us stands in a guilty state before the Lord. We're all sinners. Not one of us is righteous, not one compared to the righteousness of God. And apart from God's forgiveness, we cannot, we will, we will, um, we cannot avoid perpetually offending God with our sinfulness, and neither can we exonerate ourselves by pleading ignorance. And I really want to stress that, you know, because sometimes we just, I think it may be it's human nature to want to let ourselves off the hook when we sin unintentionally or by mistake. And we just sort of, we know our reasons and we know who we are. And so we, you know, want to excuse ourselves saying, <laughs> you know, we, it, it's just a little misstep. But no sin, no sin is a, is a misstep compared to the holiness of God. And we can't exonerate ourselves by just pleading ignorance uh, before the Lord. We need uh, atonement, something we cannot, forgiveness of our sins, something we cannot provide on our own. And so by offering an animal as a symbolic act of substitution, it's the animal that was bearing the consequence of your sin. And therefore, by offering the sacrifice, the worshiper would receive forgiveness. Now we know, and we've really stressed this, and I'll stress it again, how the innocent animal was foreshadowing the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, remember, voluntarily, without sin, became a sin offering for the guilty. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, some inadvertent sins were more serious than others, especially especially when the sin was committed by the priest, because the key role the priest played as the intermediary between God and the people. And so in verse 3 of chapter 4, it really highlights this, how a priest who sinned would be bringing guilt upon the entire people. And so the ceremonial law that was required of a priest was a more stringent purification process for the priest rather than the sin of just a common person. A more costly animal was required, a bull without blemish. You know, this bull needed to be perfect in appearance and whole in its health. It really needed to be a sinless substitute for the priest. And a priest's sin uh, offering would also require the additional special handling of the animal's blood. And, and Dan really got into that. Um, you know, you, you can get kind of lost sometimes reading Leviticus in the, in the details, but we see this very specific uh, command for what to do with the blood, how the blood was uh, smeared on the high altar inside the tent of meeting, uh, indicating that a priest's offense was so penetrating that it was necessary to cleanse the tent itself of sin. And this was the closest a priest could actually get to God's presence as possible, short of actually going behind the curtain into the most holy place, which was what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement, which was once a year. So after doing this, after, you know, um, smearing the, the blood on the high altar inside the tent of meeting, the priest would return and pour the remainder of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. So the, the fat and the kidneys be burnt up as well as the liver. You know, really stressing how it was inappropriate for the Israelite to benefit in any way from his sin. And that's why, remember, we burn up all of the, the best parts of the animal. And so, you know, it was inappropriate for them to eat the meat or to use the hide even to create leather. They just couldn't benefit in any way from this act of sacrifice. 
And so that's why the remaining parts of the carcass were removed from the camp altogether. And they were taken to a, a designated ceremon ceremonially clean place. We see that in verse 12, this ash heap. It was designated as a clean place where the remaining parts of the animal were taken. All these steps had to be done in the exact order. Remember, we have the proper gift, the proper place, and we have the proper presentation. And if all these steps were done in the exact order, uh, these steps were necessary to symbolize the staggering effects of sin in God's eyes and the drastic steps necessary for sin to be removed from God's presence. I think for me, that's been the greatest takeaway so far of Leviticus. It's just how every little detail matters, how every little detail has purpose, and there's a reason for doing so. And I know for me, one of the things I've been challenged with is just how, you know, sometimes, you know, I just can want to generalize things or sort of uh, not worry so much about the details. I'm not necessarily a detail person. And that's why, you know, the Lord has provided me with a gift. If you know Pastor Karen in, uh, in uh, Canada, who is a detail person, praise the Lord for all you administrators out there. Uh, you are gifts from the Lord. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Leviticus has just reminded me of that. That's, you know, every little, every, there's not anything that misses God's eye. And every little detail matters. Uh, but a second set of instructions is made for the sins committed by the whole congregation now. Again, we're talking about unintended transgressions. And the ceremonial procedure that's given is similar to what was just described for the priests. Uh, but the sacrificial system, you know, let's not forget that the sacrificial system in ancient Israel was providing a way to make things right for the person who was committing transgressions against one another. And traditionally, this we've called this the guilt offering, but another name that's given for this is the trespass offering. Now, there are two important differences between the sin offering and the guilt offering. The first is that the guilt offering remedied the particular offense, whereas the sin offering was more broader in scope. And second, the guilt offering always required the payment of money to compensate for indebtedness, whereas the sin offering did not. But here, you know, our passage in chapter five shows that the Lord takes seriously the way we treat him, but also the way that we treat our neighbor. And, and it does this by looking at two specific charges, uh, and those charges are defrauding God, but also then defrauding our fellow neighbors. So in verse 14 of uh, chapter 5, uh, it speaks of disloyalty in the holy thing, in holy things. Uh, what does that mean? What does holy things mean? Well, well, first, we see that this crime uh, can be committed against holy things by anyone, not just priests or leaders. Uh, but the nature of the crime is not specifically noted, but we can piece it together from other places in Leviticus of what, what crimes are being alluded to by the, the disloyalty in, law, in, in uh, holy things. Uh, first, the first sort of clue that we get is the translation of the term breach of faith in verse 15, of a breach of faith. And it, this is a term that is common in the Bible and is probably best understood within the expression of human relationships. So it, it's this act, it's acting disloyally or betraying a trust of one another is sort of the, the most uh, commonly used expression for this term breach of faith. Um, a second feature of this offense against the Lord is that the sin is committed unintentionally. And we see that in verse 15. 
So the guilt offering is not making amends for sins committed deliberately, but by mistake. The difference is not so much the sin, but it's the attitude of the offender. For the person who has no remorse cannot receive forgiveness. Third feature of this offense is the nature of the thing being transgressed, the, the holy things of God. You know, typically, this phrase refers to the sacrifices that were presented at the tent of meeting. So the things offered exclusively for the Lord's service. They were sins of omission or commission, um, but it could be the lawful, unlawful eating of the sacrifices for they for they were robbing God. So you see that there's a bit of a there's a bit of a guessing game here going on in terms of what this means. But the fourth feature that we fourth clue that we can use to sort of understand this is the gracious provision of a pardon for the sin. So even profaning the Lord's holiness could be a sin that could be forgiven if it was committed unintentionally. So even up to profaning the Lord's holiness was an act that could be forgiven as long as it was unintentional. But so a ram could be offered up as an atoning sacrifice and therefore would secure the reconciliation of the offender and release the person from his debt to God. So since this offense was defrauding God of what was his rightful due, the guilty party uh, was had to compensate the Lord for depriving him of his holiness. And so they had to make a payment. A, a 20% surcharge was added <laughs> to the value of the item that was being defrauded. And, th and therefore he shall be forgiven. Uh, describes the outcome of this uh, of this payment of this you know making making amends for the sin committed. You know the question then should be asked as we read this: How can we today as Christians run the risk of defrauding God of His rightful due? You know, although we may refer to things, you know, we we sometimes refer to things as being a holy place, and I'm not so much today as as more. Um, you know, back in the day, at least when I was a kid growing up, you know, the sanctuary was considered a, a holy place. And as a kid, you were not allowed to run in the sanctuary or wear a hat in the sanctuary, although you could wear a hat in the lobby. But when you walked into the sanctuary, you were supposed to take off your hat. Well, was there anything, um, was, it a, was it a literal holiness in the place? No, but it was more of a symbolic holiness. Um, so we, we sometimes refer to things symbolically as being holy, um, but this was more born out of tradition. But rather, we recognize, or we need to recognize, that it's the Lord Jesus himself who is the holy temple of God. And he alone is the pure and perfect sacrifice that pleases God. As well, we the church, you the church, we the church, collectively are also described as God's holy temple. And individually, Christians themselves, we are the temple of the Lord, and we are to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. So when can we defraud God? Well, we defraud God when we withhold or we pervert the worship of God. You know, in Corinthians, Paul really goes after them for observing the Lord's table unworthily. And I know a lot of Christians have stressed over what does that verse mean of taking communion in an unworthy manner? And, uh, you know, what does that mean? And, and there's a fear of, I don't want to take the Lord's, um, you know, supper in an unworthy manner. But really what he is speaking to is this perverted worship where the rich were taking care of themselves and were ignoring the poor. And there was a mistreatment of the poor 
um, by saving the best for themselves and sort of leaving hardly anything for the poor. And he said, you know, you're blaspheming God. You're defrauding the Lord. This is a this is a sin against God by, you know, mistreating your neighbor, by not loving your neighbor. So we can defraud the Lord when we when we withhold or we pervert the worship of God. And second, we can also defraud God when we choose a lifestyle that betrays the gospel and the claims of Christ on our lives. So we can defraud God when we live for the pleasures of this world. When we rob God, when we do that, for we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and we belong exclusively to Jesus. You know, at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, for you were bought with a price. So don't forget that, beloved. You were bought with a price. Glorify God. So glorify God in your body. So the third way we can also defraud God is by failing to give him our all. So when we, when we withhold from God our everything, when we don't give to God our all when it comes to service and worship and our financial resources, you know, one of the ways that we can defraud God is by failing to give him our all. And we see that as a, a really, a very painful example in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they, they were allowed to not give 100% of the sales of their property. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, is that they withheld it in secret and then lied to the community that they, this gift was their all when it wasn't really their all. They were withholding some for themselves. So that then brings us then to chapter six. So when we, we turn to chapter six, and uh, I'm almost done here. Uh, another way the Israelites sinned against the Lord was their misbehavior toward their neighbors. And I think we all know how the Bible is filled with exhortations on how we are to treat our neighbor. We've all heard the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, I'm sure, right? We've all heard that one before. Well, where does that come from? Does that come from Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel? Is that something Paul said? No, the origins of love your neighbor as yourself come from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus taught us better than anyone, more, most clearest in all of scripture, how loving God and loving one's neighbor go hand in hand. Matthew 22 verse 37 to 40 says this, and he said to them, to him being Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in Leviticus 6 verse 2, we see that this term breach of faith is, is used again. And it's being used to describe uh, a sin towards one's neighbor, which notice in verse 2 says, by sinning against one's neighbor, you're actually sinning against the Lord. You know, since they were in a covenant with God, they had been formed into a covenantal community with shared obligations towards one another, as well as God. And the same is true for us as the Christian community. You know, we're bonded together as servants by the same God who is the living Lord Jesus. So what does that make us? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And a true signal of a regenerated heart 
is towards God is the way which our commitment to Jesus changes our behavior towards each other. You know, a, a great example of this in the New Testament is Zacchaeus, who has defrauded many people, who has cheated and stolen from all of his brothers and sisters. And when he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, his heart is not just changed towards God, but as a sign of his regenerated heart towards the Lord, he wants to make amends. He wants to make things right by repaying and repaying above and beyond, you know, the amount that was uh, that he had defrauded people. So the crimes committed uh, that are mentioned in, in chapter six can be deceiving a neighbor. So it's to lie or to distort the truth. Um, another crime was oppressing a person, which is to be understood uh, more as extortion, extorting your neighbor. Uh, but when the violator had realized his guilt, uh, he had to follow a procedure for restitution. And, you know, it's not clear how the person realized his or her crime. For one might wonder, how could someone defraud another and not know? <laughs> you, know it's, you know, it's like, how do you know that you've defrauded your neighbor? And I think the only example that I can think of in all of the Bible is when uh, Jacob's wife, uh, Rachel, has taken her father's idols. Uh, if you remember the story in the book of Genesis, and then Laban confronts Jacob and Jacob defrauds his father-in-law. But, you know, by saying that we didn't, you know, we, did, I, we didn't take your idols where, because and he didn't really know <laughs> that what Rachel had done. So he had sinned against his father-in-law through this lie, to this distortion of the truth. Um, but he did so innocently because he didn't, he didn't know, or at least the text makes it seem that he didn't know. So the first step was the admission of sin and the returning of the stolen property to the owner, along with the 20% additional charge. You can see now, you know, you can see uh, Zacchaeus in this, can't you? He returns to what he has stolen and he adds to it. Well, that's what the... Uh, the guilty party needed to do. They needed to add a 20% surcharge and it had to be returned promptly on the day. So by doing that, by returning it on the day where you recognized your guilt, the transgressor was acknowledging his sin. And, and I'll close with this. Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount, this very principle. Matthew chapter five, verse 23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Can you imagine that? I've always wondered why, why don't we make this more of an intentional practice in the church? What if at nine o'clock this Sunday, we said, you know what? Church is not going to begin until you have <laughs> if you have something against another person here, you need to go to the cafe. <laughs> you need to go outside and reconcile with one another and then come back in and you can worship the Lord together. I think we would save a lot of heartache and a lot of months or years, perhaps, of grievances towards one another if we just simply made that a spiritual practice. So let me encourage that to you today. If, that, if there is someone you know in the community, a brother or sister in Christ who has offended you. And remember, Leviticus is talking about unintentional sins. So maybe they offended you unintentionally. They don't even know. Go to them and reconcile. 
It doesn't even need to be for their sake, but it needs to be for your sake. <laughs> go and leave your gift at the altar. Go and reconcile and then come back and worship. But before an act of worship you know, can be received by God, the worshiper had to be reconciled with their neighbor. And then they could go and make that offering at the altar. So I think that is significant, isn't it? I think that's a very significant takeaway for today. So as well, but notice this, as well as the one who has been transgressed. So if you were the one who had been sinned against, what was your response to be? Well, their response should be to forgive if they are to expect forgiveness from God for their transgressions. You know, when we need to be anxious to reconcile with an offending person, just as God is anxious to reconcile uh, us to himself. So then the second step was then to present a ram as a guilt offering and to present it to the Lord. Uh, in verse six, we see that just as compensation for their sin, you know, reconcile, reconciliation required setting things right with God as well as with the person who was wronged. But defrauding God and neighbor in closing was such a serious violation that God demanded the loss of life for the offender. By God's grace, however, the violator could make restitution and substitute an animal offering to make atonement. God requires nothing less for our sins and guilt before God. You know, our sin cannot be satisfied by any act of penance, sincere or not. Our best efforts fall short of the demands God expects of his people. And neither can our guilt be erased by the blood of animals or the remorse we have for our sins. Yes, don't get me wrong, remorse is an appropriate re response, but alone it's not enough. The only means by which we can become debt-free before God it, the, by, is by the cancellation of our debt through the blood shed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible bootcamp for kids. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together.